Welcome to the UNT BSM audio resources. If you want more information on the BSM, you can go to untbsm.com. Thanks for listening. Well, if you are if you are having a day like I'm having, what better thing for us to do than get in the word, right? So, hey, let's get let's get started because we got we're gonna try and cover as much as we can today. Um, we're gonna be in Isaiah chapter twenty is where we're gonna start. Let me pray, and we'll get started. God, thank you for this time for us to come in the midst of busy days and busy weeks, and know that for everything that we've got going on, for the homework or the projects or the jobs or the relationships or the broken relationships, Lord, anything that might be troubling us or worrying us, God, they are not eternal. They are not ultimate. They are not, um, they're not you. So God, I pray that this time for me would be a time where I can just be refreshed by thinking bigger thoughts than just the little things that I've had to worry about today, that we can all have our minds set on the only place where our true hope, our true security is found. God, please keep us from being tempted to put our hope in other things and lesser things. God, remind us through your word and through your prophet Isaiah of how great you are, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to be in chapter 20. If you were with us last week, uh, what we did was we jumped into, starting in uh, chapter 13 of last week, we jumped into a, a series, a, a portion in, in Isaiah where Isaiah starts prophesying in quick succession these oracles against uh, everybody. He's just kind of looking around and he's been, God has been giving him prophecies about Egypt, about uh, about Moab, about the uh, Palestinians. Uh, I'm sorry, that's today. The Philistines. Uh, the the Philistines. He's been casting these different oracles. And again, we said we don't know exactly what time. Some of these we can date a little bit better than others. But um, Isaiah's not necessarily so worried about the specifics as he is about the broader ideas and how he's sort of butting them up against each other. So if you remember last time, we saw five oracles about five different nations. And the heart of those was... Uh, that we are to put our trust in God and not in other sources of security. Namely, for the Jews, not in other nations to protect them as there's these big empires rising up that are threatening everyone around them. And what we also saw last week is, is Isaiah is talking to all of these different nations, these non-Jewish nations, these Gentile nations, that there are these glimmers of a worldwide plan that God has for these nations. There's these glimpses of how God plans to take these nations that are not his chosen people, Israel, and bring them into Israel. And we kind of saw that culminating with the way that uh, Isaiah talks about Egypt and Assyria, which wasn't that just incredible. Egypt was basically Israel's primal enemy, their first enemy, the one that God rescued them out of slavery. And then Assyria is like the biggest current enemy. And we get this prophecy of where Egypt and Assyria and Israel are all viewed together as one people, that God rescues Egypt like he rescued Israel and calls them his people, that God calls Assyria into himself and calls them all his inheritance. And it was so beautiful. And it was this amazing hope. And it was almost beyond belief at the time that this was happening because 
those nations were all fighting against each other. Actually, the thought of Assyria and Egypt being at peace with each other, much less than being at peace with Israel, was almost unfathomable because there was so much animosity that those two were fighting each other the whole time. But Isaiah is saying this is what God says, that that is going to happen. You can count on it. And what we also saw last week was this series of interim prophecies. So Isaiah is prophesying about these things that are so distant you can't imagine when they could happen. Israel and Egypt and Assyria all being one, everybody being together. Well, that's, that's impossible. And, and it's kind of the same as I can't think of Assyria ever being conquered, but we've gotten a prophecy that Babylon is going to conquer Assyria. Assyria. And what God does is he gives Isaiah these little short-term prophecies that will come true in the lifespan of the people that he's writing to, these little interim prophecies. And it's a reminder that if that came true, if all of these interim prophecies have come true, then we can hope that even though these things seem impossible, they too will come true. So when we jump into chapter 20, chapter 20 is all an interim prophecy that interestingly deals with the nations that he just talked about in chapter 19, only it's, it's a very different kind of way that he's talking about it. So he's again going to talk about Egypt, but in a different way. So look at chapter 20. It says, In the year that the commander-in-chief who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it. So that's just dating when this happened. Isaiah says, At that time the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. How would you like that job? You're the prophet, okay? And apparently he was wearing sackcloth all the time, which was a sign of mourning. So Isaiah was already walking around in very uh, obvious, very um, attention-grabbing attire. He was walking around in sackcloth. Well, God says, take off your sackcloth and just walk around naked. And so that's, that's what he does. And, and so we say, well, why is God asking Isaiah to walk around naked? The Lord said, verse 3, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot, get this, for three years. So it wasn't just like he went streaking once at a football game. That Isaiah was walking around naked for three years. As Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and of, and of Egypt their boast. And the inhabitants of this close land will say in that day, Behold, this is what has happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And how shall we escape? So at this time, when you would conquer people, a lot of times if you didn't kill them all, you would march them into exile, which is exactly what happened to the Jews, doesn't it? And at this time, they would do certain things that would um, sort of add insult to injury as a way of expressing dominance, as a way of, of expressing the, the, just the brutality of what you've done. And one of those things was they would have you walk naked. Okay? Or they would cut your robes in a certain way so that all of your parts that you wanted covered up would be uncovered. And it was to humiliate you. It was to shame you. It was just one more way of expressing dominance. We see that lots of times as we go through the, historic, the historical accounts of the Old Testament. And what God is saying is that this is an interim prophecy that Assyria is going to conquer Egypt. And then it's going to lead all of the Egyptians off into exile naked and barefoot. 
So just as Isaiah, as you've walked around and you've seen Isaiah, but, but picture this. So Isaiah's been walking around the city of Jerusalem, and everybody goes, oh, there's crazy Isaiah walking around naked again. Hide your eyes, kids. But they're wondering, what is it? Why is he doing this? Because we know he's a prophet. And this is something very common. This like them actually acting out the prophecies instead of just saying the prophecies. That's actually very common. Um, that God would have them do certain things that were symbols for this thing that he was talking about. And so they're all kind of waiting. And you know what? I bet they're probably assuming, oh, here's Isaiah again. And he's probably going to talk about how we're going to get conquered. We're all going to be punished and and he's probably mean that we're going to all be walking around naked and they would kind of ignore it but what we know is that all this time that all of this stuff has been happening the people have been tempted to put their hope in egypt as the assyrians are getting bigger and stronger egypt is going around and they're saying hey trust us okay we're going to go fight the assyrians join us and we can all beat the assyrians together and they're saying put your hope in us not in God, not in your God. Put your hope in us and our gods and what we've got going on. Well, all of a sudden, after three years, Isaiah comes out and he says, here's what this prophecy is about. Here's why I've been walking around naked. Egypt, in whom you've been putting your trust, is going to be completely destroyed and led into exile by the Assyrians. And that's why it says at the end of verse 6, Behold, this is what has happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And now how shall we escape? So that kind of sums up the whole thing that we talked about. Don't put your trust in these other powers. Put your trust in God. And then we're going to go into these next. And there's going to be another series of five oracles that ends in chapter 3. And actually, if you look at these oracles, there's five here. There was five that we covered last week. If you line them up, there's a lot of similarities between how they line up, which is kind of cool. You're going to have to do that on your own. But we're going to go through another series of oracles that are addressing different nations. But look at chapter 21, verse 1. He says, the oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. That's sort of a different title. We saw last, last time when we were looking at these, like in chapter 19, it says an oracle concerning Egypt. In chapter 13, it says an oracle concerning Babylon. Isaiah was really clear. Here's who this is about. But in these oracles, he's going to be a little bit more enigmatic, a little bit more vague in who the titles are. Because while these are referring, we'll see these are all referring to specific people, what he's wanting to do is pull back a little bit and say this is not just about this specific circumstance, but these are, these are bigger paradigms that we can learn from. These are bigger principles. There are bigger themes that this This isn't just about Babylon, but this is going to be about everyone who has a heart like Babylon. Does that make sense? So he's really trying to, so we get these kind of weird titles. But chapter 21 is about Babylon, okay? And he says, this is the oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. Isaiah says, as whirlwinds in the Negev sweep on, it comes from the wilderness from a terrible land. A stern vision is told to me. The traitor betrays. And the destroyer destroys. The Negev is the wilderness that this is happening in. And Isaiah, the Negev is in the the southern part of Judah. Isaiah is saying he's kind of standing from this position of he's in the wilderness. He's in the Negev and he's getting a vision. What kind of vision? It says a stern vision or a dire vision. It's a bad vision. A dark vision is given to me about a traitor betraying someone. And then in this next part where it starts with go up. This is kind of a, sh- a shift. So Isaiah is standing in Judah, but then he like suddenly gets this prophetic supernatural vision where he's sort of eavesdropping on this 
this conversation that's happening between the king of Babylon and these other nations that he's recruiting also to go and fight against Assyria. So this is kind of about Babylon, um, and, and they're, they're trying to rally and muster forces, this militaristic force to go and conquer Assyria. So this is what the Babylonian king is saying. He says, Go up, O Elam. Okay, Elam was one of their allies. He says, Lay siege, O Media. All the sighing she has caused, that is Assyria, all of Assyria's sighing that she has caused, I bring to an end. Therefore, my loins are filled with anguish. This is Isaiah talking again. And pangs have seized me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I'm bowed down so that I cannot hear. I'm dismayed so that I cannot see. My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. The twilight I longed for has been turned for me into trembling. So the king of Babylon says, I'm going to go beat Assyria. Come on, Elam. Come on, Media. And Isaiah hears him say that, and it says it makes him terrified that they're having that conversation. We go back. We see what the king of Babylon does. He says, they prepare the table. They spread the rugs. They eat. They drink. Arise, O princes. Oil the shield. And this is Isaiah talking again. He says, for thus said the Lord to me, go set a watchman. Let him announce what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders on donkeys, riders on camels, let him listen diligently, very diligently. Then he who saw cried out, Upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day, and at my post I am stationed whole nights. And behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs. This is like what God is saying to Isaiah is, Set up or act like you're a watchman. Okay, like you are standing on uh, the, the watchtower and you're keeping an eye out for what's going to happen. And watchmen were usually paying attention for someone to come with news of what was happening in a battle or something that was happening in other nations. So, so Isaiah is, is, God is saying to Isaiah, wait and watch because I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. And it's almost like a cool thing about what prophets get. Is prophets are sort of up. Um, we, almost, we almost think about... Uh, if everybody else is down here, God sort of lifts prophets up so that they get a, a wider view. You know, if we stood on the roof, you could see a lot more than you can see down here. And prophets get kind of lifted up. And so prophets can look out and they can see things. And, and you know, it's kind of hard sometimes when you look out and you can't tell how far away something really is. You ever go hiking in the mountains and you're like, ooh, I want to go climb that mountain. And then you find out it's actually like 10 miles away. But it looks just as close as these other mountains, okay? That's sort of what's happening. The prophets get this vantage point, this higher up vantage point. But even as they're looking out at history, they can't really tell what's how far away. But God is saying to Isaiah, set up a watchman because what you're going to see is, gonna, is causing terror to him. And this is what he sees when, when the, the news finally comes to him in verse 9. This is what the news is. Fallen, fallen is Babylon and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. So this is the vision that Isaiah has as he sees a, a vision of the destruction of Babylon. And it's a destruction that actually happens. It's a destruction that happens in 689 B.C. that they, they try to fight against the Assyrians and the Assyrians come back and totally crush the city of Babylon. And King Sennacherib comes in and it says he wrote, he wrote an account of what happened and he said, I filled the city with corpses. And then I went into the temples where their gods were and I took their gods and I crushed them. And then he took water, he brought in all of this water, and he doused everything with water so that if there was anything, any remnant left, it would just be washed away. He completely destroyed Babylon. 
And that's the vision that Isaiah has. And so as these guys are sitting here and, and the king of Babylon is, is sitting here around, you know, 750. And he's like, okay, come on, we're going to go beat these Assyrians. Isaiah is looking out and he says, no, you're not. I can see fallen, fallen is Babylon. And then in verse 10, he starts talking to Judah. Judah, who has been oppressed, who's been stuck in the middle of all these battles. He says to Judah, oh, my threshed and winnowed one, what I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you. So it's just one more thing. Why would, why would Isaiah turn to Judah now? And he's saying, what I've just seen, I promise God is going to do. Why does, it, why does it matter? With everything that we've heard so far, why would it matter now that he's saying, I guarantee you Babylon too is going to fall? Exactly. So it's all the same thing. And we see that King Hezekiah, we're going to see it in chapters 39 and, and 4, that King Hezekiah was tempted by the Babylonians to put his trust in the Babylonians. Do you get the theme? Okay, that all around Israel, people are screaming for them to put their hope in other gods, to put their hope in other sources of security, put, to put their hope in their own ends. Actually, throughout the Bible, Babylon is a stand-in, is a symbol. Remember we said that this is more than just Babylon? Babylon is always a stand-in for self-reliance. In Genesis chapter 11, we get the Tower of Babel. And do you remember what that was? It was them coming together. It's the start of the, the civilization of Babylon. And it says, Come, let us build a tower up to the heavens that we might make a name for ourselves. Not a name for God. We have no regard for God. God is in the heavens, but we can build a tower up to the heavens. We are just as good as God. And they exult in themselves. They exult in their own power. And all the way through the Bible, Babylon represents the, the organizing principle of humankind to try and organize themselves and create security for themselves over and against any reference for God. So if Jerusalem is a stand-in for the city of God, the city of faithfulness, Babylon is the city of man. It's the city where man is exalted. It's the city where man is man's own hope. And Babylon is inviting Israel into that kind of hope. But do you have that hope? Are you tempted that way? To put your hope in your own self-reliance? Is your purpose in life to make a name for yourself or to make a name for God? Is your hope the true and living God? Or is it one of these other gods that have been cast to the ground and shattered? In verse 11, the oracle concerning Duma, which is in Edom. One is calling to me from Seir. So this is someone coming to Isaiah and saying, Watchman, what time of the night? Watchman, what time of the night? And the watchman says, Morning comes and also the night. And if you will inquire, inquire. Come back again. Uh, it's really confusing. I know this is, gets kind of weird with the Hebrew. But, but do you see? Um, there's a word repeated three times. Do you see what it is? Night. And you remember we saw twilight before in verse 4 of chapter 21? Things are getting dark. That's a theme in Isaiah. We've seen that there's darkness, darkness. And, and somebody from Edom probably is coming to Isaiah and saying, How long is this night going to last? What time is the light going to shine into the night? And the watchman says, morning's going to come and also the night. And if you inquire, inquire. Come back again. He says, it's going to happen, but it's going to be a while. That's basically what he's saying. So keep waiting. Keep waiting for the day. 
because it's coming, but it's going to be a while. Verse 13, the oracle concerning Arabia. In the thickets in Arabia, you will lodge, O caravans of the Dedanites. The Dedanites are just an Arabian tribe that was wandering around in the Arabian Peninsula. To the thirsty, bring water. That's what he's saying to them. If you see someone that's thirsty, Arabians, Arabia was far away from, was pretty far away. It was hard to get to from where Judah was, okay? So there's, there's these other Gentiles, and he's saying, Arabians, if, if someone's thirsty, bring them water. Meet the fugitive with bread. O inhabitants of the land of Tima, Tima was a city in Arabia, it says, for they have fled from the swords and from the drawn sword, from the bent bow and from the press of battle. So he's saying, as all of this fighting is going on away from Judah, there's going to be these tribes, these other Gentile tribes, and he's saying, hey, Gentiles, take care of you other Gentiles. If other people that are oppressed by the sword come to you, feed them, give them water, help them thirst. But there's a bigger theme here, too, is that, you know, he's saying, take care of these other people all around you, okay? There should be the spirit of the world of these Gentiles taking care of each other, but he goes, you're not going to find hope in each other. Just like Judah can't find hope in Babylon, nobody else can find hope in anybody else. As long as you're looking for your hope anywhere but from Yahweh, from the Lord, from the one true God of Israel, the Holy One of Israel, if you're looking for your hope anywhere else... Even though they might be able to give you a cup of water, they cannot save you. And that's what happens in verse 16. For thus says the Lord to me, within a year, according to the years of a hired worker, all the glory of Kedar will come to an end. That's a bigger reference for Arabia, Kedar. And the remainder of the archers of the mighty men of the sons of Kedar will be few. For the Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. So again, nobody finds hope. Not just are the Jews supposed to find hope in God, but nobody finds hope outside of God, even if you get someone to take care of you for a little bit. He continues. This is the fourth vision. This is the oracle concerning the valley of vision. I don't know what you think about when you think about a valley. Anybody ever been in a valley? I remember I went hiking in a valley in New Mexico. It was beautiful. It was really cool. So I think of valleys, and I think they're awesome. I think they're really pretty. But in the Old Testament, valleys usually refer to darkness okay and we use that sometimes too it's like man i don't know i'm just kind of walking through a valley right now remember even though i walk through the valley of the shadow of death okay so this is the valley of vision who he's talking to so it's it's a place that's dark and it's also a place where there's lots of visions okay and we're going to see that it's referring to jerusalem the jerusalem Isaiah is talking to his own people, and he's saying it's from a place of darkness where he's talking about them. But it's kind of an interesting contrast because what he's going to start describing is that Jerusalem's having a, a feast. They're having a party. They're celebrating something. And so he's going to address them, and they're celebrating. He says, what do you mean that you've gone up, all of you, to the housetops? You who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town. He says, what are you doing celebrating? It says, your slain are not slain with the sword or dead in battle. All your leaders have fled together without the bow. They were captured. All of you who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. Therefore, I said, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. So he's, again, in this interesting place where he's in his time. Everybody's celebrating around him. But he's got this perspective where he looks out and Jerusalem is being destroyed. I mean, you get this. The prophets were the biggest downers ever. Okay? Because, like, you know, it's like, a, it's like Debbie Downer, you know? And, and they're all there and like, hey, we're having a fun time. And he's like, 
Yeah, it's too bad you're going to be destroyed in 200 years. Womp, womp. But that's what he's saying. And he's saying all of their rejoicing is in vain because he knows what's coming. He said, why are you you rejoicing? He said, don't even talk to me. I don't want to have anything to do with this party because I have seen visions of the destruction of the daughter of my people. And we, somebody asked that question last time. Well, what does it mean, the daughter of Zion or the daughter of my... That's what God calls Jerusalem. And, and fathers love their daughters. They're special to them. God calls Jerusalem his daughter. And he says, I weep over their destruction. Verse 5, for the Lord, of, the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision. A battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. And Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen. And Kir uncovered the shield. That's talking about Babylon. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots. And the horsemen took their stand at the gates. He has taken away the covering of Judah. So he gets the vision of when Babylon comes in and conquers them. And takes them away. But why are they celebrating? He talks about that here. It says, In that day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many, and you collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall, and you made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to him who did it, or see who planned it long ago. This is probably happening during the reign of King Hezekiah. Hezekiah is the one who comes after Ahaz. He's the last king that Isaiah is alive for. Hezekiah was a good king for the most part. When we read about him in Kings and Chronicles, Hezekiah wasn't, but he was a good king. But actually there's something really cool because you guys kind of know how cities work, how Jerusalem works. It was on top of a mountain and there was a big wall all around it. And so it was really well defended. And the biggest threat that it had was when nations would come up and siege it. And so they would come up around it, and they would kind of just camp out. And you know how sieges work. And if you've studied history, you look at these things, that they would be sieged. And, and it was basically a war of attrition. They're just waiting each other out. And so these, these armies would circle up around the city, and they wouldn't let any supplies in or out. They wouldn't let any water in or out. And so it was basically just waiting for them to starve to death. And that's why, you know, we see these pictures, and, and the people in Jerusalem are, like, eating each other. Because they're running out of food. And so Hezekiah knew that, that there were breaches in the city of David. He knew that there were weaknesses that they were prone to. And they, uh, he, he kind of did a, a technological marvel. is created a tunnel that would, that would bring water from this place outside of Jerusalem into Jerusalem. So that they were much less vulnerable to a siege that they wouldn't run out of water. That they had, they had a kind of a constant source of water that he worked. And, and he did other, these other things. He built up the city so that it was even more well defended. And so what a lot of people think is that this celebration that's happening is actually when that tunnel was completed. And, and the, the water starts coming in and it's such a party. But what are they celebrating for? They're celebrating because of their own self-reliance. They're celebrating because now they're even more defended. They're celebrating because they have put their hope in Tunnels and walls and devices and armies and they're and they're celebrating because this is their hope. And Isaiah ultimately looks out and he sees for all of that technological advancement, they're still going to fall to Babylon. And he says, look in verse eleven again. He says, "You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago." Again, Hezekiah was a good king. 
tunnels, aqueducts, they're a good thing. Your bank account and all the money that's in it, that's a good thing. Your friends that care for you and take care of you, those are good things. It's not wrong to have good things that, that help you. It's not wrong to have good things that provide a kind of security for you. What's wrong is when you don't look to the one who ultimately gave it to you. When you don't look to the one who did it for you and who has planned all this from long ago. When you don't give God the credit for the things that he's given you for security. And instead you rejoice in and you worship in the things that give you security. That is what almost Isaiah treats like an unpardonable sin. That is the sin of unbelief in that moment. That is the sin of unfaithfulness to God. And that's what he's saying they're doing. And so God, God will not let them continue in what amounts to idolatry. It says, verse 12, In that day the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth, and behold, he got joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine like at a party. And this is what they say, Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That sort of shows the extent of their world. Have you ever heard somebody say that? Eat and drink for tomorrow we die. It's sort of a, sort of a worldview that says this is all there is. This better work because if it doesn't we're all dead. Might as well enjoy ourselves before we go. And it shows just how very unspiritual they are. How very worldly. How very man-centered. How very Babylonian. Do you get that? They're in, they're in, they've turned Jerusalem, which is supposed to be the city of God, into the city of man. With that heart that just says, just do whatever you want, because tomorrow we die. I think a lot of people have that heart today. But Isaiah says, God has told him something. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die. This is the Lord God of hosts. Unfortunately, this is just one more of those kind of downer sections that were in Isaiah. So it gets a lot better after 39. But this is what we're tempted to, isn't it? This is what we're tempted to. But then there's kind of a cool... So that's what's going on in Jerusalem. And he's going he's gonna to zero in on just a couple of guys uh, that are sort of examples of this. So these are people that are part of the government in Jerusalem. And he's going to use them and what God is doing with these individuals, these two guys, Shebna and Eliakim. He's using them as kind of a stand-in for what is going to be, what's going to come. Okay, so, so he's using them kind of as, a, as two examples of this bigger principle of the city of God and the city of man. Got that? So first we're going to talk about Shebna, verse 15. Keeping in mind that this is all part of the same vision. Okay, this is just one more example, one more sign of this. He says, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household. So Shebna is a steward over the household of David. He's kind of like a manager. So he's got a lot of power. He's taking care of a lot of stuff in the city. Okay, He's like a city manager or something like that. He's probably very well known. And, and he, um, he's ruling. And God says, Isaiah, go to Shebna and say this to him. Verse 16. What have you to do here? And whom have you here that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself. You who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling place for yourself in the rock. This time especially you ever see, you know, the, you know like the pyramids at Giza? 
right? Those big, you know, in Egypt, the big pyramids. You know what those are, right? They're tombs. The, the person that made them, that's honored by them, made them to honor him in death. Because they thought they were so important that they needed a big tomb to be remembered by. That was very common, okay? That, that was their posterity. That was their legacy. They wanted it to go on, and so they made a tomb. This guy, Shebna, the city manager, has, has made a tomb for himself in Jerusalem. Because he thinks he's so awesome that he deserves this beautiful, glorious tomb. And so Isaiah comes to him and says, who are you that you think you get a tomb like that? Look at verse 17. He says, behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. Yeah, he thought he was strong, but God is stronger. Look at what God's going to do with him. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. And there you shall die. And there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. Way to go, Shebna. I love that. God's going to whirl him around and throw him like a, you know, like a shot put. Ever see that? He's going to do that like he's going to throw him like a shot put. And he's going to die. Bad news for Shebna, but what's the bigger principle here? Shebna thought he was great. Shebna was in it for his own glory. Shebna was was providing for himself his own. He was self-reliant. And God hates it. It's one of those themes we talked about from 1 Peter, that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And Shebna was proud, and God's not going to have anything to do with it. And so he's going to throw him out, and Shebna's going to be an example to everyone. But, but remember, God gives grace to the humble. So we get this other guy, Eliakim. It says, In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. And I will clothe him with your robe, Shebna. And I will bind your sash on him. And I will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. So there's this other guy, Eliakim. And God loves Eliakim. Presumably because he's humble. He's, he's going to be a good leader. And so God says, I'm going to take the robe. I'm going to take the authority from Shebna, and I'm going to give it to Eliakim. And, you see, and he's going to be like a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And this isn't the first time the word father has been used in Isaiah. Extra points to anybody that can remember the other time the word father was used in Isaiah. The other big time the word was used. Maybe in chapter 9, anybody think? Chapter 9, verse 6. Anybody remember? Eternal Father. For to us a son is born. For us a child is given. And he shall be called. Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Never weird anybody out where it's like, why is Jesus? Because that's talking about Jesus, right? Remember that wonderful Counselor. Everlasting, or mighty God. Everlasting Father. Why is Jesus called the Everlasting Father? That's kind of weird. Well, it's because he's going to be a father like this. This is the sense. What does it mean that Eliakim is going to be like a father to the people? But that he's going to care for them. That he's going to love them. That he's going to, he's going to be concerned for them like they were his own children. And those verses in 9-6 are saying that the Messiah, when he comes, he's going to be a father like that forever. Not that he's the father, okay? because this is Jesus the Son coming, born as a child. What it's saying is that this prince, when he rules, is going to rule with care like a father. 
Isn't that cool? And that's what Eliakim is going to be like. He's going to rule. He's going to be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to the house of Judah. And then verse 22, And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. And he shall open, and none shall shut. And he shall shut, and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. When you see that word peg, what's, what do you think of when you think of a peg? What, what do pegs go with? Pirates? Pirates? <laughs> like a peg leg? Yeah. That's funny. Like a, okay, but what do you use a peg for? Well, like what? Well, a tent. That's the only time I think I've ever used a peg. Because I am not a pirate. <laughs> I use pegs when I'm camping. And what do you, you know, and you set the tent up and you, and you hammer the peg into the ground. And what does the peg do? It holds the tent secure. You ever been in a tent where you didn't put the pegs in very well? And then the storm comes? Without the peg, the pirate would fall. Without the, and the same thing. Without the peg, the pirate would fall over. You're right. <laughs> You're awesome. <laughs> so he's saying, uh, I'm going to take a like him. And I'm going to give him the key of the house of David. If you were to turn to Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, Jesus refers to himself and he says, I have the key of the house of David, and I open and no one closes, and I close and no one opens. Or Jesus is talking to Peter and the apostles, and he says, I give you the keys of the kingdom. Keys represent authority. Keys represent access. Keys represent uh, the, the legislative ability that they get to, they get to decide things. And so Eliakim has been given this capacity in the house of David to, uh, to decide things. And he says, and I'm going to fasten him like a peg in a secure place. Okay, so Eliakim is meant to be lifted up as an example. So we have the city of man, Shebna, and he's cast out. But then we have the city of God, Eliakim, and God is going to establish him like a secure peg that's holding the pirate up. <laughs> that's holding the tent up. But is, is Eliakim the Messiah that Isaiah has been talking about? Is he the, the son that was born, the child that was given? No. He's not. So this is where it gets really interesting because Eliakim is kind of a stand-in. He's an example of what faithfulness looks like and what God will do to those who are faithful. He will make them secure. But then this gets really interesting. Look at verse 24. Okay, you know, another thing that you can think of a peg is like something sticking out of a wall, right? Like a little peg sticking on a wall that you would hang stuff on. And God is saying, I've established him like a peg, verse 24, and they, that is the people, will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue, every small vessel, from the cups to all the flagons. And that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will be cut down and fall. And the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. So this is really interesting. That's why I love Isaiah. This is not very, it's not like one-dimensional. Okay, it's very complex. This is, you remember I said that this is like Shakespearean level uh, literature. It's kind of the same thing. So Eliakim all of a sudden is a stand-in for faithfulness, but then he's all of a sudden moves back over to the stand-in for pride and the stand-in for 
worldliness for finding your hope in man. And what he's saying is that even for all of Eliakim's qualities, all of the people of Judah are going to see him and they're going to see how great he is and they're just going to want to put all of their hope in this man, Eliakim. And so they're going to hang all of this honor on him. They're going to hang all of their hope on him and he's not going to be able to bear it and it's going to fall down. So I don't know if that means Eliakim, once he sees all of these people and how, how much they love him, even though he loves them and he wants to care for them like a father and he's trying to exercise the keys of the house of David, when they, when they really turn to him, they think he's so awesome, maybe he's going to give in to pride. Or maybe for all of his attempts to say, no, 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 it's not me. They're going to bring him down by, by worshiping him the same way they worshiped their own resources, the same way they worshiped all of these other things. The point is that we need a better Eliakim. We need a secure peg that can handle all of our hopes. You ever heard that? That when you put your hope in someone else, Okay, this is especially true in relationships. When I put my hope in my wife to be something for me that only God can be, it crushes her. And it makes us fight all the time. When I put my hope in my wife to be the thing that validates me, when I want my wife's opinion of me to be that I'm awesome, and I expect that from her, it crushes her. And then she doesn't think I'm awesome, which crushes me. Okay? But when I get my validation out of God, and that God thinks that I'm awesome because of what his son has done on the cross, God can handle all of that. So when I'm looking and expecting God to validate me, he's got all of it. And then I'm validated. But when I look to other things, it crushes them, they break, they can't handle it. And it disappoints me. This is also true, I think, as we're in a season right now where we're talking about men that we want to put in place to lead our country. And you know what? Pray. Pray that we get a good guy. Pray that we get a good leader in our country, but they cannot handle all of our hopes and our weights, all of our security, all of our protection. They can't. They're not supposed to be. And my fear is that a lot of times these guys think that they actually can. They think that they actually are the hope of America, that they actually are the hope of the world, and they want people to put their trust in them. Okay? But that never is going to happen. So even this, for all of the qualities that Elikim has, we can't put our hope in him. But we need to put our hope in Jesus. Jesus alone is the true expected king. The one who, like I said at the end of Revelation, says, I've got the keys and I've got them forever. And nothing is bringing me down. He's the secure tent peg that you can put your hope in. That the pirate can put his... No, we're not going to do that. Last oracle, chapter 23. This is the oracle concerning Tyre. Tyre and Sidon were two major cities of Phoenicia. Phoenicia was a coastland nation just north of where Israel and Judah were. Israel um, has always had a pretty good relationship with Tyre and Sidon. Even when Jesus is doing his ministry, he goes up into Tyre and Sidon and he shares there. But when... uh, King David was first established as the king. He builds trade relations. The Phoenicians, you probably, if you've heard of the Phoenicians, they were really good at building boats. And they were like the first seafaring nation, which was really good for the Jews because they hated the water. They couldn't go out. They didn't build boats. They were terrified of what would happen in the water. And so they, they would use the, the Sidonians or the Phoenicians to... Uh, see you, brother. 
they would use the Phoenicians as sort of a means of trading with all of these people over the waters. And so they were economically very good for, for the Jews. And then the Jews, God just blessed them. And so they always had a lot of money. So there was a lot of like merchant, mercantilism passing back and forth between Tyre and Sidon and Judah. There was a lot of... So, so, so much so that when King David becomes the king, it says King Hiram of Tyre loved David as a son. Yeah, I bet he did because David made him tons of money. And David loved Tyre because they gave them all kinds of resources that they couldn't get on their own. So there was a lot of greed. There was a lot of mercantilism that happened. But also, David's son, Solomon, we know what happened with Solomon. He was a good, wise king for a while. And then he started taking wives from all of these other places. And one of the places that it specifically says that he took wives from was from Phoenicia. And they caused him to worship Ashtaroth which was a female god, not the true god, not Yahweh. It was an idol. And so in some ways, there's this hanging over this relationship with Tyre, is that Tyre, because Israel was always in good relationships with them, was always bringing in idolatry into Jerusalem. And so you see a lot of that with this idea of with idols and idolatry and with the trade. But this is God, this is Isaiah, God through Isaiah, condemning Tyre. He says, Wail, O ships of Tarshish. See, there's the boats. For Tyre is laid waste without house or harbor. From the land of Cyprus it is revealed to them. Be, in, be still, O inhabitants of the coast. The merchants of Sidon who cross the sea have filled you. And on many waters your revenue is the grain of Shehor, the harvest of the Nile. You are the merchant of the nations. Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea has spoken. The stronghold of the sea, saying, I have neither labored nor given you birth. I have neither reared young men nor brought up young women. When the report comes to Egypt, they will be in anguish over the report about Tyre. Cross over to Tarshish. Wail, O inhabitants of the coast. Is this your exultant city whose origin is from days of old, whose feet carried her to settle far away? Who has purposed this against Tyre, the bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were the honored of the earth? The Lord of hosts has purposed it, to defile the pompous pride of all glory, to dishonor all the honored of the earth. Cross over your land like the Nile, O daughter of Tarshish. There is no restraint anymore. He has stretched out his hand over the sea. He has shaken the kingdoms. The Lord has given command concerning Canaan to destroy its strongholds. And he said... You will no more exult, O oppressed virgin daughter of Sidon. Arise, cross over to Cyprus. Even there you will have no rest. Behold, the land of the Chaldeans. This is the people that was not. Assyria destined it for wild beasts, and they erected their siege towers. They stripped her palaces bare, and they made her a ruin. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for your stronghold is laid waste. You see all the language in there. God is... Calling them out for their, um, again, not that exchanging and interacting in business is a bad thing, but that's where they found their hope in economics and mercantilism and, and being merchants. And they thought that their glory was all that they had amassed and all of their conquering of the oceans and all of these things. And God says, I'm bringing you down for your greed, for your pride, for your pompous glory. It says in verse 15, And that day Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years like the days of one king. And at the end of 70 years it will happen to Tyre as in the song of the prostitute. Take a harp. Go about the city, O forgotten prostitute. Make sweet melody and sing many songs that you may be remembered. And at the end of 70 years the Lord will visit Tyre 
and she will return to her wages and will prostitute herself with all the kings of the, of the world on the face of the earth. Don't miss this. It's kind of so he's talked about the destruction. He says for 70 years, they're going to be forgotten. They'll be so conquered and so spread out and so oppressed that it's like they're, they're forgotten and they're going to wail. But then he says at the end of 70 years, the Lord will visit Tyre and she will return to her wages. That she's going to go back to that prominence that she had. And now still calling it what it is to her prostituting herself with all the kingdoms of the world. But they're going, God is not going to completely forget Tyre. But he's going to return them to the point where they start making wages. Where they return to prominence. And we see that that's what happened. That as they were conquered by the Assyrians and as everything came in. They were brought really low. But then as things sort of changed they grew back into prominence. But then this is, this is awesome. This is what it gets. Okay? As, as she grows in prominence again. As she gets all of her wealth. Sometime, some point in the future... There's going to be a change that happens. And no longer are they going to devise means of gaining wealth for themselves. But their heart is going to change. Just like we saw the heart of Egypt is going to change. And they're going to be joined with Israel. Just like we saw the heart of Assyria is going to be changed. And they're going to be joined with Assyria. And this is not necessarily referring specifically to those nations again. But what it's saying is that there's a time coming. And maybe we're in that time right now. When these people who had hearts that were for themselves, that had hearts for pride or for conquering or for putting trust in their others or just worrying about their money or just eating and drinking for tomorrow we die, that all of these nations, all of these people with all of these different hearts will be changed. And instead of looking at these things, they'll realize that they're worthless idols and they will turn to the living God. They will be called like a trumpet to Jerusalem, to the true Jerusalem, to the city of God where the Messiah is. And look what it says. Then her merchandise and her wages will be holy to the Lord. It will not be stored or hoarded, but her merchandise will supply abundant food and fine clothing for those who dwell before Yahweh. So this pulls back and it's one of those bigger visions again that we've seen the whole time. So isn't this crazy for all the destruction that God is? going to do against people for their sin, that his bigger hope is of a new remnant, of a, of a new people, of all these people brought in that have turned away from their idols and have turned to the living God and are using all of their culture and resources and abilities to worship God and to worship the one true King, Jesus. Isn't that cool? I want us to do this before we end. Turn to Revelation. How many of you guys, like, and, and I get it, you know, we're reading Isaiah, and Isaiah's like, it's hard, it's hard to pick apart, isn't it, sometimes? You kind of need some help to understand what's going on. Anybody ever tried reading Revelation? Oh my gosh. It's like, what's, what's going on? Okay. Um, I don't think you have to do this, but my encouragement would be that before you read, really try to read Revelation, you really familiarize yourself with the Old Testament. Because Revelation has something like 460 allusions to specific things that happen in the Old Testament. To specific language in the Old Testament. Revelation might as well, it almost fits better in sections in, like of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel than it does anywhere in the New Testament. Isaiah, or Revelation reads more like a prophet in the Old Testament than it does something new. And so, as we've just read uh, a lot of this section of Isaiah, I want us to turn to Revelation 18, and I want us to see 
some of these parallels and how they line up. And that John, who wrote Revelation, who got the vision revealed to him of Revelation, John is using this sort of pre-packaged prophetic language to just put the exclamation point on the end of everything we just read in Revelation. Because you can kind of take all those chapters that we just read in Isaiah and condense them and you get Revelation chapter 18. And then you will we'll hear what it says. So John is talking, he says, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, and listen to what he says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Now remember, John is writing in 90 AD. Okay? Babylon didn't exist. Okay? And John's not saying there's going to be a revived Babylon that's going to fall in the future. Because we know Revelation is a prophecy about what you know, is happening after 96 AD or whenever it was written. He's not saying, okay, there's going to be another Babylon and then it's going to fall. Or there's going to be a revived Babylon. And that's not what he's saying. Okay? What he's saying is, Babylon is what it has always been, a symbol of man-made pride. And it's, find, it's found its culmination. This is the, almost the end of the Bible. He's saying, near the end of all time, mankind is going to exist in this Babylonian heart. This, this just organized principle of we find all of our hope in ourselves. We have no reference for God. We're just trying to glorify ourselves and put our trust in our own things. But John sees this vision of the great Babylon and everything that stand opposed to the city of God and the faith is fallen. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. Remember what God called Tyre and Sidon's wages, they're prostituting themselves with the nations. Okay. But then there's specifically sexual immorality too, which we've seen in Isaiah. The kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. Turn away from the idolatry of Babylon, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others. And repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion of her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as queen. I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, slaves, that is, <coughs> human souls. Do you get the idea? All of that stuff is not, is not worth 
what it costs. Only Jesus's. The fruit for which your soul longed. Do you long for materialism? Do you long for sexual immorality? Do you long for these things? He says, leave Babylon. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea. Remember Shebna? Saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints. And of all who have been slain on earth. And if you guys had the time, I would just keep on reading. Because what happens after this is Babylon, the city of man, is finally laid low. And in chapter 19, we see the rider on the white horse who's called the Word of God who comes and he conquers all of the enemies of God and God's people. And then in chapter 20 and 21 and 22, we see the city of God. The city of God filled with all of those things that Babylon had that it got punished for. All those things that Babylon had, all the, the riches and the pearls and the wine and all these things were that, that they put their hope in, that they gloried in, those things were thrown away. But we see the new Jerusalem coming and it's got all of those things too. Only we're not worshipping those things, we're worshipping God who's in the midst of those things. And we get to enjoy all of those things for what they really are. Pleasure that comes from God, gifts that come from God, but we will remember the one who does it. And not find our hope in these other things. The whole story of the Bible is really the story of two cities. City of man and city of God. And the point of Isaiah is to call us out of the city of man if you're there. And to put your hope in the city of God. Because in the city of God is where our king is. And is where all hope is found. He's secure. All riches and pleasure. And if that doesn't get you excited, that doesn't, I don't know what does. But all that stuff's far away, isn't it? And right now we still kind of live in the city of man. We're still tempted by the city of man. And so we wait and we put our hope but we have to wait with diligence for that day because it's coming. God set a watchman. And so we watch and we wait. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Encourage us with this. Don't let us find our hope in worldly things. Don't let us find our security in things that are fleeting and will not hold us up. But help us find our hope in you, Jesus. Because even though you were unstained from the world, you were unstained from the things of the city of man, you came to man. You who knew no sin became sin for us. All this punishment, all this guilt, all these things that Isaiah talks about as being deserved for the people that have turned away and worshipped other gods. Lord, you came 
and absorb that rest. Help us to worship the one true God, to be the Holy One of Israel. God, help us to be faithful to you and you alone for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.